Let's open our Bibles to Psalms chapter number 73 this morning. And uh, let me add my gratitude to uh, what Brother Jim said. If you're here and you're a visitor with us, what a blessing that that is. And there's you probably had to pass half a dozen churches before you got to our driveway. And uh, we don't take that for granted. We want you to know how we appreciate you being in the house of the Lord today. And, uh, and I'll say thank you to our regular folks being here as well. Amen. I'm especially, those visitors don't know us. I can see why they might mistakenly show up, but you know us and you still showed up. What a blessing that is, amen? Psalms chapter number 73, and we're going to read the entirety of this psalm, uh, and, and we won't use all of it in the preaching of it, but we'll use most of it, and uh, I want to use the end of it as well in the preaching, so we'll read the entirety of it. The Bible tells us this is a psalm of Asaph. And we'll say a little word here in a moment about who Asaph is. To really understand this psalm, you've got to sort of know who Asaph is. To understand the, the impact of it in his life. And I believe the Lord can use it in our hearts this morning uh, as we give careful attention to his word. Psalms chapter 73, uh, verse number 1, it begins this way. It says, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For there are no bands in their death, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. Asaph been watching the news, hadn't he? Therefore his people return hither. Waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how doth God know? And is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. If I say I will speak thus, behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then understood I therein. Surely thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation? As in a moment, they are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream, when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when Thou awakest, Thou shalt despise their image. Thus my heart was grieved. I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I and ignorant. I was as a beast before Thee. Nevertheless, I am continually with Thee. Thou hast holden me by my right hand. Thou shalt guide me with Thy counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but Thee? And there is none upon earth that I desire beside Thee. My flesh and my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For lo, they that are far from Thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from Thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all Thy works. Let's pray together. Father, what a blessing it is to be in Your house this morning. Lord, with Your precious Word, it's ministered to my heart before we've even begun the preaching. Lord, I've got help just from the reading of it. 
And I pray, Heavenly Father, that as Your Word is preached forth, that it would not be my words but Yours, and that the Spirit of God would have liberty to take the truth of God and apply it in the hearts of the people of God. And Lord, if there are some here that are not Your people, that have never been saved, they've never trusted in Christ as their Savior, Lord, I want them to know, and I want You to let them know, Lord, that they don't have to leave here in that condition. They can trust in Christ. They can ask forgiveness and you'll forgive. They can seek you and you'll be found, Lord. They can call unto you and you'll answer. And you'll change their life and save them and create in them a new creature. And Lord, I pray they would do that before they'd leave this place. Now, Lord, we commit and trust everything that will transpire to your care. For there is nothing that we are seeking to do that we are capable to do. Everything, Lord, that we're trying to do this morning must be done by you. It must be done by heaven. And we'll be sure to thank you when it is accomplished. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I think when we read the 73rd Psalm, we find a man that is having what some people would call a crisis of faith. Uh, we find a man that is struggling regarding his spiritual relationship with the Lord. And that is remarkable to me that God would be so honest and transparent. I don't know about you, but if I was writing the Bible, I would only uh, put the pen in the hands of people that I knew were going to put me in a good light, that I knew were always going to be positive and upbeat, that are never going to complain, that are never going to have warts and flaws and, and failures. But you know, God loves us enough. He ministers to us where we're at. He knows that we have problems. And so He shows us how to deal with problems through His Word. When we come to Psalm 73, we find a man that's having a problem in his life. Now, that's remarkable, Brother Charlie, but it's especially remarkable when I consider who the penman was. Now, we know the Holy Ghost is the author of the entirety of, of God's Word, but God chose to put the pen in the hand of a man named Asaph. And Asaph is not a man that we are unfamiliar with as regards the record of God's Word. He's mentioned a plethora of times in the Bible. But the question has to be asked. Many times he's mentioned when the Bible says it's a psalm of Asaph. There's a few times he's mentioned as ministering alongside David during David's reign. But I think the question most of us would ask and do ask when we approach a psalm that is credited to someone other than David or Moses or Solomon is we often say, now who is this fella and what is his story? Well, when we turn in our Bibles to First Chronicles 25, and you can turn there if you like, you don't have to, I'll read it to you, but we get an idea of who Asaph was and what his responsibilities were. In First Chronicles 25, the Bible's detailing to us who it was that ministered in the tabernacle. That was the place of worship in the Old Testament. And the Bible tells us in verse number 1, it says, Moreover, David and the captains of the host separated to the service, meaning to the work of God, the sons of the sons of Asaph and of Heman and of Jejuthun, who should prophesy with harps, with psalteries, and with cymbals. And the number of the workmen according to their service was, and it goes on and it lists the children of these three men. So the children of these three men, Asaph, who we're talking about, and Heman and Jejuthun, were the musicians in the tabernacle. They were responsible for playing the songs of worship. They were responsible for leading the congregation in praise to the Lord. But not just the sons of these men. Down in verse 6, after it's listed who these men were, the Bible says all all these were under the hands of their father for song in the house of the Lord with cymbals and psalteries and harps for the service of the house of God. According to the king's order, listen now, to Asaph, 
Jejethun, and Heman. So in other words, these three men were tasked with leading their children and their families in worship as their families led the congregation as a whole in worship. We sort of do the same thing sometimes even in the church today. We'll have a group of folks that come up to the choir and they'll sing. And often as Brother Kerry did today, he'll turn around he'll say, Hey, sing this song with us. It's page such and such. So you've got Brother Kerry, he's leading the choir. And then you've got the choir up here that's singing. And then you've got the congregation out there, and I hope that you're singing along with that choir. Well, these three men were the joint choir leaders in the land of Israel. And the Bible tells us in verse 7, it's what no small choir. It says, so the number of them with their brethren that were instructed in the songs of the Lord, even all that were cunning, was two hundred fourscore and eight. So in other words, Asaph, along with Jejethun and Heman, were the joint choir leaders, Brother Charlie, of a 288-voice choir in the land of Israel. It was their job every time that they had a feast or every time that they had an event of worship, it was their responsibility to get up and say, turn in your red-back hymnal to page number such and such. Undoubtedly, that's exactly how they said it. Now stop and think about it for a moment. Here's a man whose responsibility is to lead the people of God in corporate worship. I mean, he's got to get up. You don't want a song leader that gets up and is frowning. You don't want a song leader that gets up and is in a bad mood and, and, and is mad. You want a song leader that gets up and is, is breaming with excitement and, and optimism and somebody that Brother Ken is excited to be there and excited to lead everybody. The first thing they tell you if you take any classes on leading worship or leading songs, always smile because nobody else will be. Amen. Always smile and, and be upbeat. And that's who Asaph and his friends were. It was their responsibility. But when I come to Psalm 73, I don't find a man that's up to the task, do you? I come to Psalm 73 and I don't see a fellow that wants to sing and smile. I see a fellow that's struggling. And this thought occurred to me, and I want to preach to you for a few moments this morning. If you had seen Asaph, from all outward appearances, everything would have looked like it always did. He would have got up. He would have had a smile on his face. Later on, he talks about the fact, Brother Ken, he couldn't tell anybody he was going through this. He was afraid to share with anyone what was going on on the inside. So he just, he did what a lot of us do. He got up, he smiled, he got up and he sang, he got up and he was, he was optimistic and exciting and effervescent. He put on the show in front of everybody. But something different was going on on the inside. And this thought occurred to me. Here's a man who's singing on the outside, but he's struggling on the inside. You spend any time around the people of God, You'll meet some folks like this. They've learned how to, how to put a show on. They've learned how to paint the veneer on. And they get up and they sing on the outside. But if they were to share what's going on in their hearts, they'd admit to you that they're struggling on the inside. Did you know sometimes the people of God struggle? Did you know sometimes we may come and we may have a song on our lips and we may have a, a, a tune that we're whistling and we may be projecting a position and an attitude of joy. But sometimes if you knew us the way God knows us, you'd know that sometimes we're struggling on the inside. When I read Psalm 73, I see Asaph struggling with some questions that he has. And here's what he, uh, here's what winds up happening. You come to the uh, close of the psalm. We'll get there when we, when we preach our way there. But you come to the end and God's given him peace in his heart. You know what God did? God took the, the, the inside, Brother Ken, and made it look like the outside. 
I'm glad to report to you, we don't just have to sing on the outside. He can give us songs in the night, and we can sing on the inside too. So let's notice a few things from this passage, and then we'll close this morning. First, let me say by way of introduction, I think it is worth noting the first two verses. They are different markedly in tone and in message from what follows. Uh, We know that Asaph was writing this retrospectively. Uh, He has already come through this crisis. He's already uh, moved through this storm that he's been going through. And now he is recounting what was going on in his heart and in his mind. And so he opens up this psalm with a summarizing statement concerning his frame of mind. He says in verse number 1, Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are of a clean heart. But as for me... My feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. Now, you know what I find there? I find the cry of a discouraged believer. Christians get discouraged, but we get discouraged in a way different than a lost person does. You see, a lost person can get discouraged. They can be like Chicken Little. They can run around believing the sky is falling. But when you and I got born again, son, we read the back of the book and we know how this thing ends. We know that God's in control. We know that God's got everything worked out. That doesn't stop us sometimes from growing discouraged. So what happens in that dynamic? Well, there's two things he notes here. And the first one, man, he sounds like every discouraged Christian that I have ever talked to. They all start off the same way. Brother Toby, I'm not saying God doesn't have it under control. Isn't that how we all start it? But, and that's exactly what Asaph does. Notice what he says here. First, he notes that his foundation is solid. He says, there are some things that I do not understand what I'm going through. There are some things that I know to be 100% true. Number one, he affirms the immutability of God's character. Brother Charlie, he says, truly, God is good to Israel. Now, you say, preacher, that's good that He's good to Israel. But this is a Jewish man saying it. You know what he's saying? He's saying, hey, God is good to me. Can I tell you something? It don't matter how bad things get, God is still good to you. Asaph said, listen, I know that God has been good to me. I'm not saying that God is an unjust God. Now, it's interesting because later on, he sort of says he thinks God is an unjust God. You say, what's happening there, preacher? That's his flesh and that's his spirit battling. That's him struggling with what he knows to be true, but reconciling it with what he's going through. You know, sometimes you can know all the truth in the world and still struggle. He says, I know that God is good to Israel. Probably everybody in this room, if we took a straw poll, if we said, hey, listen, how many of y'all think God is good? I bet just about every hand would shoot up. And probably then if we said it again after your neighbor woke you up, then every hand would go up. Uh, Listen, uh, we would all say we know that God is good. And that's what Asaph says. He affirms the immutability of God's character. He says, I may be going through a, a trial, but God hadn't changed. I know that God is still good. And then he says this, even to such as are of a clean heart. Now, why does that matter? He affirms not only the immutability of God's character, he affirms the impeccability of God's judgment. So what do you mean? Well, he's saying this, I know God is good, and I know God is good to those who have been good to God. Now, let me give you a little New Testament perspective. I'm glad to report to you that any favor that I have with God is not predicated on how I treat God. It's predicated on God's goodness to me. But what Asaph is saying here is God is just. If a man has clean hands and clean hearts, he can ascend into the the, uh, the hills of the Most High. He can ascend into the secret places of God. He's affirming all that. 
he's saying, I'm not saying God has been unjust. I'm not saying God has messed up. I know God is good. I know He's better to me than I deserve. And I know God pays attention to how we live. And I'm not saying God has been wrong in what He has done. I'll tell you this, we may look at times and we can't reconcile. And, and let me use Asaph as an example here. We're going to beat up on him a lot today, so let me use him as an example. We need to always remember, everything else may go wrong, God's never wrong. He's never messed up. Are you listening now? Abraham said, shall the judge of all the earth not do right? Brother Charlie, he does right. The Bible says in the New Testament, He doeth all things well. And He does do all things well. God has never made a mistake. He's not going to start with you. He's not going to start with me. He's never dropped the ball. He's never messed up. He's never let anybody down. And why would we think that God would start with us? Can I tell you something? You can be like Asaph. You can be like most of us. You can believe God is good all the time. You can believe that God never makes a mistake, but still be struggling. How does that happen? Well, when I read this passage, I, I, I notice that he, he speaks of his foundation. He, he says his foundation is solid. I don't need a sermon. I, I, I don't need a theology lesson. I don't need more catechisms. He says, I know all these things about God, but here's where the but comes in. You ready? He says, but as for me. In other words, he says, I know God's good, but that don't mean I'm okay. I know God never makes a mistake, Brother Fred, but... I sure feel as though I'm struggling. His foundation is solid, but he says his feet were slipping. I, you know, I, I don't know about you, I'm not the most graceful creature that God has put on this earth. I, I, I don't think I'm accident prone. I just think me and accidents hang out in the same places. But I will tell you this, uh, I've never once fell that I haven't blamed it on my footing. I've never once bumped into anything that it hadn't jumped out in front of me, right? <laughs> Tree jumped right out in front of the car I was driving. You know what he's saying here? He's saying this, listen, I know it's not God, but that don't change the fact that I'm not okay. Can I tell you, there'll be times you live your Christian life, you'll, you'll say the problem isn't with God, the problem's with me, but it doesn't change the fact that there's a problem just the same. He says, I'm not, I, I'm not saying God is the problem. I know He is right. But I sure don't feel right. Something is wrong. What did He say about that? Well, first He notes that He was weary. He says, my feet were almost gone. The language seems to imply the idea of something that has been double extended. Brother Ken, I was helping somebody move a piano this past weekend. What's wrong with a man that he'd help move a piano that ain't even going in his house? But I did it. And uh, we were moving this piano. It wasn't one of these big jokers here. It was a console piano. But uh, that don't mean it's any lighter. It just means there's less to grab hold of. And so we were moving this piano. And uh, this is how it would go. We, he'd, he'd look at me. He'd say, you ready? I'd say, yeah, I'm ready. I'd say, you ready? He'd say, yeah, I'm ready. And we was both lying. But it wasn't going to get moved unless we lied. And uh, so we'd take and we'd lift it up. And we'd go about four or five foot. It's just two of us moving this thing. And then all of a sudden, my legs would start doing this Elvis Presley thing. And my arms would just turn to jelly. And I knew it was time to set it down. You know why? My legs was gone. They was overextended for their weight capacity. 
You say, preacher, how much does a piano weigh? Well, I'm happy to report not as much as I do. Somebody say amen to that. Because my legs, they'd have trouble. And we'd set it down, we'd rest a little while, and we'd get up. But that feeling of shakiness, that was telling me my feet were almost gone. Here, I think, is what Asaph is saying. I think he's saying, I'm not weary of the way, but I am weary in the way. I'm not tired of the Lord. I'm not mad at Him. I'm, I, I, I'm not wanting to give up on Him. But I just feel like my legs are shaking. I feel like I'm stretched beyond what I can handle. It says my feet were almost gone. And you know what that produced? Not only was He weary, but because that He was wavering, He said my steps had well nigh slipped. That word slipped has the idea of pouring something out. It carries with it the, the notion of standing on something that is wet. Or slippery. Here's what he was afraid. He said, I don't want to give up on God. I don't want to walk away from my commitments to the Lord. I don't want to step out on this service, uh, this life of service. But I feel as though I'm just bearing too much weight. And I feel as though my feet are beginning to slip. Can I tell you something? I've seen Christians slip out of the way before. I, I, listen, I, I'm thankful to report to you that, listen, your salvation is not predicated on your faithfulness to God or your commitment to Him. You didn't save Him. He saved you. <laughs> I like what a preacher I heard say this past weekend. He's talking about eternal security believer and people get upset about that notion of one saved, always saved. He said, if you didn't want to go to heaven, you shouldn't have got saved. <laughs> I like that. I'm glad to report God saves you and He saves you eternally. But listen now, I'm not talking about losing your salvation, but I am talking about losing your testimony. I am talking about losing your, your commitment to the Lord, your relationship with Him, not your, not, not your, your family relationship, but your fellowship relationship with Him. There's been plenty of folks, I hate to report it to you, but it's the truth, that got in the same shape that Asaph did, and they're out today. How does a man get in that condition? Well, I noticed three things in this passage, and that's my entire message, is these three things. How did Asaph get in this shape? I believe if we find out how he got all messed up, we might find out how he got all straightened out. You might be here today and say, Preacher, I don't know how I got in this shape. Well, listen, I think Asaph reports to us and tells us exactly how it happens. You know, I notice these three things. Number one, how did he get so discouraged? How did he get so distraught? Number one, Brother Ken, I noticed that he chose to focus on the present instead of focusing on the promises of God. You say, what do you mean? Well... He tells us in verse 3. He says, For I was envious at the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He said there are no bands in their death, meaning that they, they don't die with shackles upon them. They don't die with constraints upon them. He says, but their strength is firm. They are not in trouble as other men, neither are they plagued like other men. Therefore, pride compasseth them about as a chain. Violence covereth them as a garment. Their eyes stand out with fatness. They have more than heart could wish. They are corrupt and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They speak loftily. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walketh through the earth. In other words, Asaph said, I was doing all right when I had my eyes on the sanctuary. I was doing all right when I had my eyes on the saints of God. But I started looking out at the sinners in the world. I started seeing what they was getting away with. I started seeing what they was promulgating and propagating. I started to see how they were prospering. And it wasn't long before I grew discouraged looking at the world and comparing it with my experience. When I read this passage, I notice, number one, the disturbing present 
that he describes. If you were to listen to Asaph in those six verses, why, you'd believe God fell off of His throne. Is it any wonder that Asaph started to believe that God fell off of His throne? You know part of the problem with us today? You know why we're such a discouraged people? You know there's never been a time in human history when the church has enjoyed such leisure and such luxury, such safety, security, and comfort as she does today. And yet I don't know that there has ever been a time in the history of the church of the living God when we've been as negative, when we have been as discouraged, when we have been as downtrodden and distraught as we are today. You know why that is? We spend all of our time watching the wickedness of the world. Listen, I'm not advocating we stick our head in the sand. I'm not advocating we pretend the world is not in the mess that it's in. But listen, it don't take much. All you have to do is take a quick peek and you'll learn everything you've got to learn about the world. You don't have to live with your eyes fixated on it. Listen, two minutes on any cable news station, you'll learn the world's messed up. That don't mean you need to sit there for 12 hours drinking it all in all the time. I'm saying, we use the excuse, preacher, I want to be well informed. Your past well informed, son. You're malformed by what you're watching. Listen, this isn't about being well informed. We've grown addicted to the carnage. We need to understand that has, that has an impact on us. Uh, this is how Asaph got all messed up. He looked around and he noted two things. One, that sinners are prosperous and prideful. He said they've got anything they could want. They've got more than heart could desire. They vaunt themselves against God. They curse God. They blaspheme God because they are unaccosted and unmolested in their leisure and in their prosperity. They turn around and shake their fist at God. Hey, listen, it ain't nothing new. It's been going on a long time. All the way back in Asaph's day, people were saying, hey, listen, the wicked seem to be getting richer and getting away with it. And he said not only that, but because of that, they're cursing and blaspheming God. Why don't God do something about this? Before we come to the close, Asaph learns why God doesn't and what God will do. But the first thing he noted that the sinners are prosperous and prideful. Now somebody will say, well preacher, he should have just got his eyes off of, off of the sinners and looked at the saints. But it wasn't no better for him when he turned around and looked at the people of God. Look at verse 10. He says, therefore his people return hither, and waters of a full cup are wrung out to them. And they say, how doth God know, and is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the ungodly who prosper in the world. They increase in riches. He must have found, I don't know how many Baptists there was in the land of Israel in that day, but Asaph found one and said, how's things going? (laughs) Sounds exactly like it, don't it? I've met people in my life, listen, if you're discouraged, don't find them. They'll bury you. They'll just bury you. They won't help you out of it. They'll just, they'll, just, they'll just push dirt over top of you and set a headstone up. they got no interest in helping you out of the, the, the discouragement you're in. And he found some of them. And when he talked to these people, you know what they said? They said, man, we just feel like wrung out dish rags. We feel like everything has been extorted and extracted from our lives that can be taken from us. We feel as though the rich are abusing and taking advantage of us. And then because of that, we look towards heaven and say, God, don't you see what's going on? Don't you understand what's happening down here? And then whenever they don't get the answer they want, they look around and say, these are the wicked that prosper and grow rich. In other words... He says this, he looked at the world and saw that sinners are prosperous and prideful. Then he turned around and looked at the saints and realized they were persecuted and puzzled. This is the age-old question, right? 
The book of Job is, is, is occupied with answering this question, Brother Charlie. Why do the godly suffer? Asaph said, I got to looking around. It seemed like the devil's crowd was having a good go of it. And it seemed like God's people were really struggling. You know, if you look around at the world today, you will still see a similar dynamic. I think one of the greatest testimonies to the transformative power of the Lord Jesus in the life of the believer, and sadly we're losing some of this in our society today, is that despite all the persecution that has existed against Bible-believing people, we've remained with the spirit and attitude of victors instead of victims. Sadly, the society we live in today has put a monopoly and has put a price and has put a currency upon victimhood. And a lot of Christians and a lot of church people today are buying into this garbage. And I mean, to hear them say it, man, getting saved was the worst decision they ever made. I mean, it just made everything rough on them. Don't listen to that crowd. Don't listen to that crowd. Now listen, I understand, I understand the world hates Christ and Christianity. I understand that. I also understand our faith is the victory that overcomes the world. I'm not a victim. I'm more than a conqueror through Him that loved us. But if you look at some people, they'll treat it as though life has just fallen to pieces. That's what he was looking at. Now, we come to the end of the passage, and we find that God had showed Asaph some different things. So we see the disturbing present that he was focusing on. But then notice the divine promises that God had given. Down in verse number 18, after he's been in the house of God and got a little help, he says this about the wicked. He said, Surely, talking to the Lord, Thou didst set them in slippery places. Thou castest them down into destruction. How are they brought into desolation as in a moment? They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awaketh, so, O Lord, when Thou awakest, Thou shalt despise their image. In other words, he as he went into the house of God and met with the Lord and was ministered to by the truth of God's Word, he came out of it and he said, you know, it looks like they're winning right now. But right now is not eternity. And right now don't last forever. And right now is, as Paul describes it, but for a moment. But there's coming a day when everything's going to change. The script, my friend, is going to be flipped. The God of glory is going to return to this world and He's going to set everything right. And here's what he began to understand, that number one, their dominance is brief. I remember hearing a man say one time, and it stuck with me, that you should never begrudge the wicked their prosperity, for it is the only blessing they will ever enjoy. You understand, it's all downhill if they leave this world in their lost condition. And how dare we as God's people, who are the heirs of eternity and the glory of God and the blissfulness of heaven and God's presence, how dare we denigrate ourselves enough to begrudge a lost man whatever's sitting in their wallet? or in their bank account. Saying this, man, they're only going to have it for a little while. Why would we be mad over that fact? Don't you know that your God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and He has the means to give you anything that you need? He has the means to give you everything you want, but some of the things you want is not what you need. And He loves you enough to give you what you need instead of what you want. If you've raised kids, you understand that dynamic that sometimes you're giving them what they need instead of what they want, not because you hate them, but because you love them. But I'm just saying this, if God wanted to make you as wealthy as a tech mogul, if God wanted to make you as wealthy as most of our politicians, if God wanted to make you as wealthy as some great great a hedge fund manager or entrepreneur. He could do it if he wanted to. He's not beyond the capability to do that. Why does he not do that? Well, because he's trying to develop in you something greater than what they have sitting in their bank account. And also because he has not yet taken the reins of this world in full authority and autonomy the way that he once will. One of these days he's going to sit on a throne and he's going to set everything right. 
Asaph said, you know, I began to realize that their dominance is brief, and number two, that their destiny is bleak. He said, this is what they've got right now, but it's only for a little while. And sad to say, one of these days, they're going to stand naked before an almighty God uh, with nothing to cover their sin and nothing to cover their unrighteousness. Now listen, God is not angry at rich people. He's not impressed by poor people. He has no interest uh, in what is sitting in a man's wallet except in as much as it can uh, elicit a spiritual reality from that person's life. God's not upset that people got money. God's not proud that people don't. But I'm saying this, if all they leave this world with is their prosperity, they've left poor. Poor. You've heard it. I've said it. And even if you've never heard me say it, you've heard it before, that you've never seen a U-Haul or a hearse pulling a U-Haul trailer. You've never seen a hearse with a luggage rack. You cannot take it with you when you go. And if all they have is that, they don't have much. Now, he could have spent all of his time looking to the Lord, but instead he spent all of his time looking at the world, and it got him discouraged. And then I noticed a second thing this morning. Look down at verse number 15. Actually, let's back up verse 13. Verse 13, he says, Verily I have cleansed my heart in vain, and washed my hands in innocency. For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. He says, If I say... I will speak thus. If I tell anybody, he says, Behold, I should offend against the generation of thy children. When I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. Say, so, preacher, what do you think is going on in his heart and mind? I'll tell you what I think. He did what a lot of us do, Brother Ken. He made the choice a lot of us made. He wasn't okay. He was struggling. He had no interest in doing the work that God has set his hands to do. He said, I have cleansed my heart in vain. I have washed my hands in innocency. He was saying, there's no point in me doing what I'm doing. But he was too prideful to admit what he was going through. So you know what he did? He painted on a smile. He put on his fine clothes. He grabbed his hymnal. And he walked up to the lectern as he had done a thousand times before. And he faked it, hoping he, he would make it. You know what he could have done? I don't want, I don't want to get a hold ahead of my message. Let, let me say this. You know one of the reasons he stayed discouraged and grew discouraged? He chose hypocrisy over help. You know, every time we're struggling, we have a choice we have to make. Do we want to play the hypocrite or do we want to get help? You know what a hypocrite is? It comes from the old Greek word, uh, that means an actor, an actor, someone playing a role. And that's what Asaph was doing. There's probably, I don't know, I don't know anyone's heart but my own, and really I don't even know that. God knows it. But I'm saying this ain't directed towards anyone, but it wouldn't surprise me in a room this size to find out there's some folks just playing a role this morning. Can I tell you, you don't have to do that. There's help to be found. Notice the terms of his hypocrisy. Why did he do that? He said, if I speak thus, I should offend the generation of thy people. In other words, he said, I'm afraid of what people would think. I wonder how many times folks been kept out of the altar because they was afraid of what people would think if they went down to the altar. Can I tell you something? It don't mean a, a single bit. It, it means less than nothing at what somebody thinks of you when you come down to, to God's altar. It just don't matter. When you get serious about your condition, it won't matter to you either. Can I tell you something the devil won't tell you? Truthfully, when folks go down to the altar, uh, the other folks are generally uh, doing one of three things. Number one, and this is about 95% of folks, they're sleeping. Number two, they're sitting there thinking, well, you know, I guess God's working on their heart. I'm glad 
that they're dealing with the Lord. Or number three, they're thinking, you know, I probably ought to be down there at that altar. It's almost unfathomable to me to think of someone looking at someone going down to an altar to get help and think, well, I wonder what's wrong with them. You better not say it out loud. We'll run you out of here. You see, that's a lie from the devil. Uh, The truth truth is, I don't mean this in an ugly way. Nobody cares except in as much as they're glad you're dealing with the Lord and it ain't their business. But the devil would have you to believe that everybody is just watching what you're doing. I, I, I don't mean this in an ugly way, but most of us just ain't that important. Now, we're that important to the Lord, but I'm saying most other people, they're just uninterested in it. But you know, Asaph, he said, I can't get honest with the Lord because what would people think of me? Did it help him? I don't think it did. You know what he says in verse 16? He said, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me. I don't. I, I see the terms of his hypocrisy. But Brother Kerry, I see the, the torment of his hypocrisy. Can I tell you something? Sooner or later, the mask will fracture. Sooner or later, the veneer will disappear. Sooner or later, the struggle will get too heavy and it will all come crashing in. There's no peace in hypocrisy. There's no peace in pretending like you're okay when you're not. There's no peace in pretending like you're right with God when you're not right with God. Sooner or later, if you're a child of God, it'll catch up with you. And if you're here and lost and undone, you may push it out of your mind. You may walk out of this place and distract yourself with the world's offers. But sooner or later, you're going to stand before a just God. And even before then, you walk out here, there'll be no peace in your condition. He said... I was tormented by it. it. was too painful for me. So you know what he did? You know what he did? He said, I just quit thinking about it. You know, that's where a lot of people are today. That's how you grow numb, Brother Ken. That's how you quit hearing the voice of God. Is you just say, it's too tough for me to think about what it would take to get right with Him. So I'm just going to pretend like I'm all right with Him. And I'm just going to ignore it. But you know what the great tragedy is of his hypocrisy look at verse 17 he said this was where i was at man this is what i was dealing with until i went into the sanctuary of god then understood i therein you know what i thought about how many similarities i don't think these are by design but how many similarities there are between ancient worship and and the worship that we enjoy today he would not have been if you understand how the tabernacle was structured you had you had an outer court and then you had a holy place where the priests would minister. And then you had the holy of holies where only the high priest could go on the day of atonement. So when he says, I went into the sanctuary, he's talking about as a priest, as part of that priestly class, he went into the holy place. Not the holy of holies, but the holy place. He went into the place with the showbread and with the altar of incense and with, with all that. And there's probably a lot of instructive truth about the help that he got in there from that. But here's what I notice. If he's leading this choir, where would he have been doing that? So back there, you've got the Holy of Holies. And then you've got the holy place. And he would have been standing in that outer court. He would have been leading that choir. You know what was amazing, what was tragic to me? The whole time he's going through this, and he's standing up there, and he's playing the games, and he's pretending, and he's faking it. But Bill, he's probably just a few footsteps from the place where help can be found. Probably all he would have had to do was look over and say, Hey, Jedjathan, come on up and take a chorus or two of this. I need to get some help from the Lord and turn around and walk just a few paces 
back to the sanctuary and get help from the Lord. The great tragedy of his hypocrisy was that week after week, he went to the place where he could have got help, but week after week, he walked away unhelped. You know the great tragedy when we start to play games and play the role of the hypocrite? The very fact that we're coming to church is what predicates us playing the hypocrite. But we're coming to the very place where we could get help if we'd just receive help. The whole time, he was a few footsteps away. He said, preacher, I'd never do that. Well, I'd say there's probably just a few footsteps between this altar and even the farthest place in this sanctuary. Come into the place where you can get help. The great tragedy is that the devil could get people into church and keep them away from this altar. Think about that. He don't mind you getting all the way in here. He just don't want you getting help from the Lord. And I'm not saying this place, this geographic location is synonymous with help, but we understand that when a folk uh, comes down to the altar, they're doing it because they're, they're humbling themselves before God and they're acknowledging that there's something needs to be addressed, needs to be dealt with, and they're doing it in obedience unto the Lord. So I'm saying the devil don't mind if you get all the way in this building. He don't mind you standing in the outer court. He just don't want you going to the place where help is found because that's when things change. But Charlie, I, I see that he, he chose to focus on the present instead of the divine promises. I, I noticed that then when he got messed up, he chose hypocrisy over help. But then I noticed a third thing, and I'm going to mention this and be done. I see that he got in this condition because he chose declaring criticism over drawing closer. You know what's amazing? He comes down to the very end of the chapter. This is written many years later, undoubtedly. And he says this, My flesh... And my heart faileth, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. And that's what had happened to him before. His flesh and his heart failed. He started to give out. But he said, you know what I learned? I learned that in those moments of weakness, God is my strength. And in those moments of, uh, of, of spiritual bankruptcy, He's my portion. And then he says this, For lo, they that are far from thee shall perish. Thou hast destroyed all them that go a-whoring from thee. But it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord God that I may declare all thy works. Boy, that's the Asaph that got help. But you know, for the most of that chapter, that's not the Asaph that we are introduced to. Where do we find him back in verse 13? Notice with me very quickly the cynicism that devoured him. So he looks at where he's at spiritually. He knows he's far away from God. He knows he's struggling. He knows that he's getting ready to, to, to slip out. And instead of drawing closer to the Lord, what does he do? Verse 13, he says, Verily, I have cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands in innocency. Can I translate that to East Tennessee hillbilly language? He says, There's no point in serving God, Brother Ken. What's it all for if God can't even give me peace in my heart? What good is it to get all them singing if God can't put a song in my heart? You know, that's one way you can look at it. You can look at it and say, I'm serving God, and it's tough sometimes. And you can say, well, if God was really all He's cracked up to be, then He would make the way easy. There's another way to look at it. If God is who He says He is, and He must be who He says He is, because even when it's tough, He can give us joy and give us songs. He wouldn't be much of a God if He could only 
uh, give us joy when we had a new car, a set of clothes, or a new house, when everything's going well and our health is good and we're happy. We don't need the joy of the Lord in those moments. He wouldn't be much of a God, but you know the kind of God we've got? <laughs> the kind of God that we've got can make a preacher and his companion sing songs of praise unto the Lord at midnight at a Philippian jail. He can make a man sing out and pray unto God and rejoice in Him while he's in a lion's den. Our God is the kind of God that can take somebody in the midst of a fiery furnace and give them strength to get up and walk in freedom and in liberty. I'm saying this, we've got the kind of God that is built for hard times. You could look at it and you could say, if God was really as good as He says He is, I wouldn't be going through hard times. Or you could look at it and say, hey, my God is so good that He's with me even when I'm going through hard times. He said there's no point in serving God. And then He says a, a, a second thing. And this is, man, this is, this is Baptist 101. You listen to me? Verse 14, He says, For all the day long have I been plagued and chastened every morning. He said there's no point in serving God in verse 13. In verse 14, he says there's no pleasure in serving God. Can I just... I don't know if this is going to seem unkind, what I'm about to say. If it is, please forgive me. I don't mean it in an unkind way. But if I was in the shape Asaph was in, I'd probably be miserable too. If my opinion of God was what Asaph's was, I'd probably be sour and shriveled up and miserable and angry too. Can I tell you something? There's some folks that just endure this Christian life. But you know God saved us to enjoy it. He didn't save us just to muddle through. I know it's hard sometimes. I, and somebody's sitting out there saying, Preacher, you don't go through what I go through. Yeah, you don't go what I, through what I go through. But I'm saying this. He's been through everything that we go through. He's tempted in all points like as we are yet without sin. He's touched with the feelings of our infirmities. And I'm saying this, uh, that, that there's some folks say there's no pleasure in serving God. Well, that's just because you ain't doing it right. It's probably because you ain't doing it much. If you'll do it more, you'll enjoy it. I'm not saying there's not hard times. I have hard times and you do too. We all do. But I'm saying this, if we as regenerated children of God, born into the family of God and dwelt by His Spirit, washed in His blood, seated in the heavens with Him, if we can't rejoice, then rejoicing is impossible. But we know it's not impossible. It's really just a matter of finding our strength in the Lord. The joy of the Lord is our strength. Uh, you know, that also kind of sort of implies that when we find strength in the Lord, there's joy in it. They go hand in hand. So uh, we see the cynicism that devoured him, but then notice the solution that delivered him. Uh, how did he get help? He went into the sanctuary. He said, then I understood. How did he get help? Look back at verse 21. He said that when he thought about all this stuff, and this undoubtedly is a conversation that he's having with himself and the Lord when he's in the sanctuary, he said, after I saw that, thus was my heart grieved. I was pricked in my reins. You know what we call that? We call that conviction. It's a word we use today. It's, the word conviction, well, the word convicted is found one time in your Bible in, in John chapter number 8. But the idea of conviction is all through the Bible. It's when the Holy Ghost convinces you of your sin. And, and that's what it is for the lost person. He convinces them that they are a sinner, lost and undone. That's true for the saved person. It's when He convinces us that we have sinned. That's what this was. Uh, we would call it today Holy Ghost conviction, but the Word of God showed him his error. He says, I was pricked in my reins. So foolish was I, he said, and ignorant. I was as a beast before thee. That's strong language. 
You know, the Bible says in 1 John chapter number 1 and verse 9 that if we confess our sins, He, meaning God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know what that word confess means? It means to agree with somebody about something. To agree with somebody about something. Like, for instance, if you said, I'm the most handsome man in this building right now, you're just confessing that. You're just agreeing with me about it. Amen? Just confessing. You're just agreeing with somebody about it. To make confession has nothing to do with going in a little phone booth with some priest. That has nothing to do. That's not what confession is. Confession, rather, is agreeing with God about some matter. And typically, as regards our sin, it's agreeing with God about our sin. You know, I've tried to make a practice of this, and I don't know if I do it all the time, but I've tried to make a practice of when I've sinned and done something wrong, and, I, and I'm praying and asking God's forgiveness, I try to call it in as ugly terms as I can. I don't mean crude or, or, or inappropriate, but I mean when I'm, when I'm talking to the Lord, I, I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't just neglect to mention something. I lied. Right? I didn't just borrow something and not give it back. I stole it. All right? I tried to admit it in the, in the ugliest terms. You know why? One, it buffets my flesh. It buffets my flesh. But then number two, it ensures that I am agreeing with God as best as I can about that matter. God sees sin as an ugly thing. We ought to confess it as being an ugly thing. He uses pretty strong language. He said, I was like a beast before thee. I was foolish. I was ignorant. You know when he got help? He got help when he made confession. When he admitted that his spirit and his attitude, his hypocrisy, when he admitted he was messed up and needed help, he got Help. Honesty is a prerequisite for help. You've got to get honest before you can get help. We come, we've made a foolish practice of coming into the house of God for the express purpose of getting help, but being too prideful to ever admit we're messed up and need help in the first place. How else could you get a person to come in and go no further than eight pews in their spiritual life? That's how. He can get you in the house of God because good Christians go to church. But whoa, now we ain't going to admit that we're messed up and need help from the Lord. Our pride keeps us from doing that. You know when he got help when he made confession? You know, number two, Brother Ken, when he got help, and I'm not going to read all of it, but look what he said down in verse number 28. He said this, It is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord that I may declare all thy works. Asaph says, You know when things changed for me? was when I got honest, when I, when, I, when I quit playing games, when I quit being the hypocrite, when I turned around and left the choir and went to the sanctuary and told God that I was messed up and I was broken and I needed help and I needed encouragement, things didn't change until I moved closer to Him. Amen. He could have stood up there at that lectern for the rest of his life and died a miserable failure, spiritually speaking. God would have never come out of that holy of holies and dragged him back in, Brother Fred. You know when it changed? When he moved closer. Now, you know what you find? If you'll step out, God will meet you in that middle aisle. He'll he'll meet you in the aisle. You say, give me Scripture for that. The Bible says, draw nigh unto Him, and He'll draw nigh unto you. You know what He'll do? If you'll step out, He'll step out. If you'll step out, he'll, He'll come and He'll meet you. And He'll walk with you down to that place. I'm saying this. You know when He got help, not only when He made confession, Brother Kim, but when He moved closer. 
When he said, I'm done with this pride. I'm done with this hypocrisy. I'm serious enough about my spiritual condition. I'm willing to admit that I messed up and I need help and I'm struggling. And he stepped out. He said, I'll go meet God where I know I can find Him. And I'll ask the Lord to give me the help that no one else can. And you know it's true for you and I that we won't get help from the Lord until we're willing to move closer to Him. It's not because... God's impressed with us moving closer. It's because we're not even for real about it until we're willing to move closer. The prerequisite is honesty and sincerity, not moving closer. But when we get honest and when we get sincere, we'll move closer to Him. And that's why He meets us where we're at. We can't get there on our own. And He knows that. So He meets us when we step out and move towards Him. But we've got to be willing to move closer to Him if we want Him to move closer to us. I'm glad to know that uh, Asaph... When he closed the psalm, he closed it with a song in his heart. He was singing on the outside, but he wasn't just singing on the outside. He's singing on the inside. And he wasn't struggling anymore. And you know, you and I don't have to leave here struggling today. We can get help from the Lord if we'll just come unto Him. Let's bow together this morning as musician comes to play. The altar is open and you don't have to wait for the first note to be played. You can step out and come to the Lord even at this moment. Uh, it's not me that can help you, it's the Lord. He can speak to you where you're at, but if our pride would keep us from getting serious and honest with the Lord about this, then it would keep us from dealing with the Lord whether we were down there or in our seat. So why don't we just find a place down here if God's spoken to our heart. You might be struggling this morning, but you don't have to stay that way. God can give you peace. He can give you a song. Father, I pray that you'd bless this invitation. I pray that your people get help. Lord, we ask it in Christ's name with our heads bowed, our eyes closed. She's going to play as soon as she's ready. The altar's open. What about you this morning? You struggling? You don't have to keep struggling. God can give you peace. He can give you help. He can give you strength. He can give you joy. We don't have to stay struggling. I'm not saying the things we struggle with will all go away in a moment. But I'm saying the God of glory can give us strength in the way. And He can help us and He can give us the peace that we so desperately need. Job said he gives songs in the night. Boy, that was a man going through a dark time. He said, through all this, the Lord has given me a song. The altar's open. If God touched your heart, there's a place for you. Why don't you come down and meet Him in this altar? He'll do the work. You, you say, I wouldn't know what to do. You don't have to. He'll do it. Just come down and pour your heart out to Him. Come down and bear your heart to Him. He'll do everything needs to be done. Just meet Him. And He'll deal with your heart. These are praying. We have all the time we need. I invite you to come.